All right, good morning, church. So good to see all of you. We're going to continue worshiping God as we study His Word. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you open that up to 1 John chapter 5. All right, we're going to read our text. If you'd follow along, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. This is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, that is to final death, to final judgment. So if you see someone committing a sin that doesn't lead to to that death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. That is two final judgment. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death, final judgment death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So John has been pressing for the church to be a distinctive, countercultural community of faith. And we've seen that when he talks about the signs of life. He wants these to be evident in the body of Christ, the truth test, the love test, the obedience test, of people who love and hold on to sound doctrine that centers on Jesus Christ, his person and work, of people who obey what Jesus commands and what he gives us in his all-sufficient word, and of people who love one another with with world-arresting exuberance, right? So he's, he's gunning for that. He's aiming to this distinctive community of faith. Now, my closest friends in high school were uh, pretty much all Chinese. There was one Hispanic friend, and it was kind of like, if you saw this group of people, mostly Chinese people, Hispanic, and me, uh, that was my squad, my closest friends in high school. And one of my friends good friends, David Chin, he lived three streets down, so I would turn, I lived on Elmwood, I would turn right, I would go past Pike and Senac and then Wade, I'd turn left, go two blocks and David Chin's house is there on the right. And walking into his house was a countercultural experience. It was so different from my upbringing and the sound of his house, the ways of his household and his family were totally different to me. I came across an article some years back in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior, by Amy Chua. And she goes on to add the qualifier that this isn't really about Chinese families per se, but that she's kind of arguing that there's a philosophy, generally speaking, of parenting in the East, and a philosophy of parenting in the West, and she's making the argument that her philosophy is better. So here's what she says, I found this interesting. A lot of people wonder how Chinese parents raise such stereotypically successful kids. They wonder what these parents do to produce so many math whizzes and music prodigies. 
what it's like inside the family and whether they could do it too. Well, I can tell them because I've done it. Here are some things my daughters, Sophia and Louisa, were never allowed to do. Attend a sleepover, have a play date, be in a school play, complain about not being in a school play, watch TV or play computer games, choose their own extracurricular activities, get any grade less than an A, not be the number one student in every subject except gym and drama. Some of you are like, that's the only subjects I was good at, (laughs) gym and drama. Play an instrument other than the piano or violin, not play the piano or violin. (laughs) And when I read that, I thought, David Chen, that is exactly what his parents, it was like it was a playbook, and they followed that word for word down to the letter. Some of you, when when I read that, you're realizing, my parents were Chinese. Like, I didn't even know that, but apparently... My parents are Chinese. And I read that and I just remembered walking into David's house, it was like entering a different world. It was so distinctive. And I I would submit to you that John's pastoral goal and objective is he wants the church to feel like when you walk inside, you're in another world. It is a countercultural community of faith and love and truth, and you walk in and it should feel like I've transitioned into a new place. John doesn't want it to feel like just ho-hum, culturally uh, imprisoned to all the, the zeitgeist and the spirit of the times. He wants it to look and sound totally different from everything you see in the culture. I think in our culture, there is this kind of collective yawn when they look at the church, and it's because We've lost our distinctiveness. There's not a radical countercultural community within the church, and John is aiming at that. We've seen all along that there's this kind of pulsating energy in 1 John, these signs of life, and John says, I want to see this. I want to see a love for the truth, a love for sound doctrine. I want to see a love for one another. I want to see a love for God that's evidenced in an obedience to his word, an eagerness to obey what Jesus says. And so I want to finish our time studying this letter by thinking very specifically about our life as a church, which is why I put Brook Hills in the title of the sermon. Brook Hills Know this. So these are three truths for us to say to one another and to live out as members of the Church of Brook Hills. Truth number one, pray and he hears you. Pray and he hears you. The church is meant to be a a people who have a vibrant, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship has all the feel of a relationship, right? He, he talks to us. God speaks with us in his word. We hear him speaking. And then what do we do? We talk back to him in what we call prayer. The word and prayer, that's how we get stronger in this relationship with the one true and living God. He speaks in his word. We speak to him in prayer. And John is talking about prayer all over this passage. Now, he's not using the primary word that the New Testament writers frequently use when they talk about prayer. Prosukamai is that original Greek word that all the New Testament writers, they're always using it. They're throwing that word out all the time when they're talking about praying and prayers. It's prosukamai over and over and over again. Well, Peter never uses that word and John never uses that word. And John... In 1 John, this letter, he uses one word over and over and over, and it's not the customary word for prayer. 
It's the word that would be translated ask. So look at our passage. He's talking about prayer, verse 14. This is the confidence we have before God. If we ask, he's talking about prayer. You can see that. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we, there's that word again, ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. He loves that word. Verse 16, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask. We're still talking about prayer. He should pray for that person. And God will give life to that person, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray. That's actually another word that means ask. It should just be ask. I'm not saying he should ask about that. So what's what's the point? When you you look at those words from John, what's one thing that you take, take away from that? And it's this. It's good for your times of prayer to be filled with asking. That's not unspiritual. It's one of the essential ingredients of prayer. You think about what Jesus taught his disciples. So they always saw Jesus off there and he would go off into the mountainside and he would pray all night sometimes. And they asked him, it's like they knew this was a part of the magic. There was something, there was a secret sauce in this thing that he does, this communion he has with the Father. And so they pull up close and they have this opportunity and they say, teach us, what are you doing? Teach us to do that. Teach us to pray. And what does Jesus do? He gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. He gives them the model prayer. And how does it begin? He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, and everything after that is an ask. May your name be hallowed. Petition number two. May your kingdom come. I'm asking for this. Let your kingdom come. Petition number three, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Petition number four, give, this, give us this day our daily bread. We need provision for our earthly needs. Ask number five, forgive us our debts as we forgive. So what are you asking for? You're asking for mercy and forgiveness from God and a heart of mercy toward others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, who are our debtors. And then the next one is lead us not into temptation. And then the seventh petition is deliver us from evil. It's full of asks. God, I want this. I'm praying for this. I need this. And Jesus is telling us, and John is telling us, echoing that, that we can pray with confidence when we pray in light of of the will of God, which is revealed in his word. That's the language that John uses here. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Those seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer express the will of God for your life. The Puritans and the Protestant Reformers took this so seriously that they said, um, you could look at any prayer in the entire Bible, pull out the Psalms and read through every single request in the book of Psalms, and you could lay the Lord's Prayer over it, and every request ever made in the Bible fits into one of these seven petitions. That is to say, Jesus gave us the whole paradigm. You can ask for all of this. This is all what God wills for the world, what God wills for your life. So you can pray all of this in confidence. That's not just you making up your own priorities. God wants to do this. That's what John is talking about. He wants the believers praying, not out of their own resource of priority system that they've laid out on their own, based on the will of God revealed in his word. So how do we pray with confidence? Point number one, we pray scripture. 
the better we know the word, the more confident we are in prayer. Again, he uses that word. This is the confidence we have. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. I would encourage you, if you haven't before, learn how to pray God's word back to him. We've talked about this as a church we practice this as a church when we have our special faith family gatherings where we say, hey, if, you, if it's possible for you to fast all day and then meet us here tonight and we'll spend some time praying, and what do we do? We put up on the screen passages of scripture and then we put some topics and some things that we wanna ask God for that are informed by those texts of scripture and then we say, go to work. And the idea is that in all these small groups all around the room, we're praying in accordance with his will so we know when we leave, he heard us. Because we weren't making it up on our own. We were praying his will right back to him from his book, from his self-revealing word. If that's new to you, if that concept is new to you, let let me recommend a book for you to, to check out. Donald Whitney wrote a little book, very short little book called Praying the Bible. That book revolutionized my personal prayer life. And it injected, I, I trust that you walk through this book and you maybe study through it with your small group. Maybe make that a, an approach to something that you might do in 2020. And it will bring, I trust, greater freshness, greater biblical variety to the kinds of things that you're praying about and ultimately increased confidence that you're not talking to the walls about your own feelings and opinions. You're talking to God about what he wants to do in your life, in your family, in the world. You're praying his will and something powerful happens when we're praying in accordance with his will because he hears us. So we pray scripture. Number two, we pray together. We pray together. It should be commonplace for believers to be stopping and praying for each other. Not only in private, but with each other right here. I just heard that need. Can we just stop and pray right now? I, I was at a conference a few years back. Uh, was a part of the conference, and I was backstage with the person who leads the conference, the, uh, the late David Pallison, the former executive director of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And he was going to be the main session speaker for the first main session. And we're talking backstage. And uh, I had had various short conversations over the years with Dr. Pallison, and I love and esteem him highly in the Lord. He loves Jesus. He's a very humble soul but he's an extremely gifted individual. He went to Harvard. He was converted atheist while he was at Harvard, a brilliant author and thinker and scholar. And, but he's incredibly gracious in conversation, and he insists that the conversation be about you rather than him. And so he just wants to find out everything about your world and your life and, and what's going on. And the main session was just about to begin, so we were parting. It was our longest and best conversation we'd ever had before, and, but now we're parting ways, and he said, before we go into the main session, uh, he said, would you pray for me? And I thought, okay, I must have looked at him like he had two heads, because he broke all the rules. And in ministry, sadly, there is very much a kind of caste system, and it goes like this. It's an unwritten code that, that the, uh, the lesser never pours into the greater, 
The greater pours into the lesser, and we keep it that way, and everybody stays in their echelons of where we are in ministry and platform and worldwide recognition and so forth. And here's a guy with worldwide recognition, and he's asking the lesser to pray, and he shares some things that were burdening him. And I, I, got, I got a lot out of the conference. I listened to all the sessions and so forth. But my main takeaway from the conference was, why don't I ask people to pray for me more? Like, why don't I just say, right here, right now, would you pray, here's what's going on this weekend, or here's, here's a heavyweight, or here's something I've got misgivings or apprehensions about. Would you just pray for me right now? Let me ask you the question, when's the last time you asked somebody to pray for you? Right here on the spot, I need you to pray for me. Families, parents, when's the last time you asked your kids to pray for you? I realized what a statement of self-reliance it is that I don't regularly ask people to pray for me. Because the Apostle Paul asks believers in the churches, he's, pray for me, pray for us that we might be bold. It's like, don't you know how to be bold? You got stripes all along your back. You know how to be bold better than we know how to be bold. He's like, pray that we would be bold. I need your prayers. It's the church. Years ago, my, my older brother Paul served in a local church uh, where one of the ministers got on stage and this minister had been asked and tasked to lead in prayer and it was in an area that he had a great burden about, a great passion for. And so when he began to set up that time of prayer and to lead in prayer, he was emotionally overwhelmed and kind of lost it a little bit. He was stumbling emotionally and holding himself together. And my brother said, between the services, this is a very large church, and between the services, the senior pastor called him back into the green room and rebuked him. And he said, you looked weak, and our people need strong leaders. So pull yourself together and get back out there in the next service and pray like a leader prays. Where? Where do we see anything like that in Scripture? Here's the thing. Strong people don't pray. The, the only people who really pray are weak people. That's what motivates, that's what creates a, a spirit of prayer. So we're not just moving our lips trying to impress people, but a spirit of genuine prayer arises from a sense of poverty of soul, poverty of spirit, weakness before an almighty God. That's the only thing that generates prayer. It's only weak people who pray. Strong people don't want to pray, they just want to do it, right? Just get her done. Strong people don't need a savior, they're doing the saving. That's, that's their job, to do the stuff, right? You, you see Jesus and he walks up and he sees this scene and he's gonna interpret it for his disciples. He says, here's a guy over here, a PhD in theology, Pharisee, recognized by everybody here in town. He's praying and it's stringing together this incredibly profound, eloquent work of art. And he's praying this over here. And then Jesus looks over here at this other poor tax collector who can't spell the word theology, but he's just ripping asunder his clothes and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, God's only hearing one of them. He hears this guy right here because he's praying out of need and humility. As we come into the month of December, are you asking God for things? The year's not over. Are you asking God 
for things in your own life? Are you asking him to do great things in our world, great things in and through our life together as a church? Are you asking confidently because you're not asking what you want yourself, you're asking in conformity with what God wants? Is that imbuing confidence into your prayers? Are you asking God, give us generous hearts to finish out this year? God, give us boldness in our witness as we finish out this year, are we praying together? Is that, is that the culture in here? Do people walk in and say, this is a prayerful place. Our small group is a prayerful place. Can I ask you to refresh your commitment to make those special times of prayer in 2020, to carve out that as a holy moment, as a kind of sacred convocation of, of God's people so that our fasting and our prayer, in effect, what I hope is stated in each one of those times is that we as a church are holding up a sign that says, we're weak and you're able. We can't do this on our own. It's not by might, it's not by power. That's why we're here and that's why we're praying. This truth shapes the culture of our church. Pray and he hears you. Second, fall and we'll catch you. Fall and we'll catch you. I think that's the main drift of verses 16 and 17 is fall and we'll catch you. It's a restorative thing that's going on there. But there are admittedly some challenging words here as well. So I'm gonna read them again and try to comment on those challenging words briefly. Verse 16, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, final death, final judgment, he should ask, he should pray and God will give life to that person, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. That is final judgment. I'm not saying he should pray about that. Here's the thing. Even though he starts by talking about this sin that doesn't lead to death and praying for that person, and then he comes back at the end of this passage and does the exact same thing and talks about there's a sin that doesn't lead to death, that's the main idea, but sometimes those hard verses have a way of jumping up and down and waving their arms and saying, I'm the main point, focus here. It's, it's not the main point of the text, but it's there. So what's that part mean? This sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. So there are passages in Scripture that suggest that there is a point of no return in our stubborn refusal to repent in our tenacious pursuit of sin, there's a point of new return. Once, Hebrews lays it out this way, that once someone has seen what Jesus has done on the cross for our salvation, has tasted of the powers of the age to come, and then turns away, wide-eyed, turns away from that gospel and pursues and endures in a condition of sin and rebellion, there is, Scripture says, a searing of the conscience as with a hot iron. It's a kind of training toward apostasy, internal apostasy training program that's going on where you're actively suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and there comes a point, Scripture suggests, that your repenter is broken. Not that you can't repent, but your repenter is broken such that you don't want to anymore. You're never going to want to again. That's the scariest thing in the Bible, by the way. The scariest thing in the Bible is not that when I rebel against God, he'll snatch me up and grab me with both hands. The scariest thing in the Bible is that when I sin unrepentantly, tenaciously, despite his pleadings to the contrary, and I'm going after it, the scariest thing is when he takes his hands off. Romans chapter 1 this repeated refrain, and God 
gave them over to a debased mind. You want this so bad. I'm telling you, it's destroying you, but you keep wanting it. And there comes a point where God in his judgment takes his hands off. What's the upshot? What's the point for us? It's here in our notes. Run to the light and don't play with false teaching. Run to the light. Good things happen out there in the light when we're confessing our sin and our brokenness. Run to the light and don't play with false teaching. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling here this morning and you think, I have done it. I have committed the unpardonable sin. I, have, I think I'm the one who has sinned the sin that leads to death. And I would say to you this morning, do not turn in. Do not give up. Don't isolate yourself. Don't separate yourself from the church. Don't disappear from fellowship. Stay out here in the light with the rest of the mess of who we are, with all of the rest of us, confessing the worst of it. Stay out here in the light because there is no sin. John teaches this so clearly. There is no sin that we will humbly confess that God will not graciously forgive. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're wondering if you're too far gone, if you're wondering and you're concerned about an area of sin that's grown in your life, I'd say to you, you're not too far gone. And the evidence is you're concerned about it. Right, the kind of final telltale sign of the unpardonable sin is the one who did it doesn't care and plans to do it again tomorrow. If you're concerned about an area of sin in your life, at least that tells me that you're, you're trying to face homeward. There's something, an internal conflict, a Romans 7 conflict, and you're tilted, your body, your soul is oriented toward home. And I would just urge you from Scripture, come on. Come on home. You're not far gone. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. So come, come to the Father, and the Father will meet you with open arms like he did the prodigal son on the road. What a picture, just tearing across that field. Friend, Christian friend, print Romans 12, 2 in your mind. Make that a prayer in your life. God, don't let my mind be conformed to this world. Don't let me cave in. Don't let me give in to the fashionable ideologies of a world that's spinning toward judgment, of a culture that hates your commands. Don't let that be my story. Keep me. Keep my soul. Renew my mind. Convince me your way is right. Your way is true. Your way is good and beautiful. That my best life, if we're going to talk about that, that my best life is actually a life of obedience to your commands. That's the good life. That's a tree planted by streams of water, delighting in your commands, bearing fruit in every good thing. Run to the light and don't play with false teaching. And the next one is this, run to your brothers and sisters with love and humility. And there is that restorative sense of this text. If anyone sees a believer, a fellow believer, committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, he should pray, and God will give life to that person. You see how aggressive, you see how involved, you see the church doing the work of the church, running to brothers and sisters, and and saying, you fall, I'm here. 
You fall. I'm standing right here behind you. I'm going to catch you, and I need you to catch me if I fall. In the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 11, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, now he changes the metaphor slightly. If two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? What a metaphor for the church. A church is a place with blankets to throw on shivering, cold souls. Come get warm. And the church is a place that runs to those who have fallen and doesn't kick them while they're down and throws a hand and says, pick you up, come on, let's walk together. I'm gonna stand with you. I'm gonna do battle with you. In prayer, in life, I'm here. This is the church. Look, no church is perfect in this area. Our church is far from perfect in this area. We've got a long way to go in growing to where we have a culture of meaningful membership, life on life, close relationships, speaking the truth in love and not doing it in superficial kind of relationships. That's part of the design for nights like tonight. So that you, as members of the church, care about incoming new members. You actually want to see them. You want to meet them. You want to know their names. You want to pray for them. It matters to you. It matters what's going on in our faith family. You want to hear updates about what God is doing and what he's saying as he leads us forward. Um, A friend of mine told me a story about two members in his church and something that happened several years ago that has long-standing effects to this day. Here's the story. Richard and Andy worked in a factory outside of a West Texas town. Andy's new faith, so Andy's a new believer. Andy's new faith was growing, but he told Richard his drive home was a daily battle. A few miles from his house was a fork in the road. A left turn led home, but a right turn took him to the strip club that had long been his escape. One afternoon, Andy confessed he craved to go to the club after work. Before Richard left, he prayed with Andy and assured him Jesus would help him resist. It was pouring rain when Andy began his drive. Approaching the fork in the road, he noticed something in the median. As the windshield wipers brushed aside the rain, he saw Richard standing at the fork with a large piece of cardboard. (laughs) On it was an arrow pointing home. And he turned left home that day and every day since. That's the church. Cardboard sign in the rain. You come home. Today you come home. Tomorrow you come home. Living in fellowship, pursuing holiness, loving the Lord, embracing his word together. I've been encouraged by the example of so many in our church family. I can tell so many stories in this space of things. I've been encouraged by the example of of Mark Sly. So Mark Sly is our student minister. And I think of him, I thought of him this weekend because I realized in retrospect how many meetings I've had in recent months with people who, unknown to one another, independently of each other, happened to say to me something about struggles that they've experienced, pain that they're walking through in life, and they mention Mark's name. And if you back up and you look at the broader story of what was being discussed in that room, it was basically this story. I was falling, and that guy 
picked me up. I was falling, and that guy caught me. That Mark Sly guy caught me. That's the spirit of New Testament church life. And it's the spirit of New Testament church life because it's the spirit of the New Testament gospel. It's right there at the center of the Bible is this story of what God has done to save sinners and rebels like you and me, that we had sinned against a holy God. This is the story of the gospel. We had sinned against a holy God. He is perfect. He is holy. He doesn't tolerate evil. That's not something he needs to repent of. Righteousness is a good quality. He's not sorry for it. It's an aspect of his divine perfection that he's righteous in all of his ways and doesn't tolerate evil. But because God is holy, made us in his image to obey and worship him, and then we've sinned against him and broken his law and he doesn't tolerate evil, that means I'm toast. I, I, got, I got no way to make myself right with this holy God. I can't pay my, myself out from under the debt that I owe to his Holiness, and this is where the surprise twist ending comes in of the gospel, that a holy God who could have condemned us in our sin instead did what? Sent his only son into the world to bear my sin, to pay my debt to the justice of God, to go and hang on the cross in my place, to live a perfect life where I disobeyed, to offer his body as a once for all sacrifice for my sin and to rise again from the dead. That's the story of the gospel. It's this, you and I, we were falling into judgment and Jesus caught us. He stretched out his arms on the cross and caught sinners. That's the good news. Is that, is that in the water? Is that in the culture of the Church of Brook Hills? Have you believed this? Have you believed this gospel and turned and trusted in this one and only Savior? Trust Him. Brook Hills, know this. Pray and He hears you. Fall and will catch you. And thirdly, know this. Jesus will keep us. Jesus will keep us. This... This letter is not an exhortation to live the passive Christian life. Again, John's word, remain, remain, abide 21 times over and over and over. He's saying, don't give up ground. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He's, he's not urging us to passive kind of lazy river float toward Jesus Christianity. It is an active faith. It is an active life of repentance and living in the light. And then he cl- concludes the whole letter. Look at the last verse. He concludes with this kind of parting exhortation to remind them of things he said before. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Don't be passive. Underneath 1 John is the sound of war, the the fight of faith. But then the larger emphasis of these last verses is on Jesus' decisive role in your final salvation. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin, but the one who's born of God keeps him. Many believe that that second one who is born of God is a reference to Jesus Christ himself, the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth, that he's the one who keeps us. This one born of God par excellence, Jesus Christ himself, God's only begotten son, keeps us and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one and we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are, this is union with Christ, in the true one, that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Why is it important for us to close 1 John remembering Jesus' role is ultimately decisive in our salvation? One, because our text talks about that. Two, because John was there when Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. And what did Jesus pray? He says, Father, having, I have kept these safe. And he says, I'm not asking for you to take them out of the world. I'm asking that you would keep them. Protect them from the evil one is Jesus' own words. And then in John chapter 6, 37 through 40, everyone, this is Jesus speaking, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose how many? None of those he has given me, but should raise them up, that is all of them, on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will, that's a sovereign will, I will raise him up on the last day. In light of John 6, 37 through 40, ask you this question in your notes. How many of his children will Jesus lose? None. None. Impacted personally by the writings of J.I. Packer. He wrote Knowing God. He's walked with Christ for many, many years. I think we even have a picture of, of J.I. There he is right there. And um, I thought I loved J.I. Packer. I do love J.I. Packer. But there's somebody on our staff who loves J.I. Packer even more than I do because he named his dog Packer. And this is, I think we have a picture of Packer. So there's Packer, right? They're just, they're perfect for each other. They're equally beautiful and glorious in all their different ways, right? But here's, here's one of the things I love about J.I. Packer. To read his books is to be focused on the glory of God, the sufficiency of God, the perfect work and plan and goodness of God. And I love this quote. I thought about it this week while reading this text, and it's from J.I. Packer, and he says this. Your faith will not fail while God sustains you. I love this. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. <laughs> How good is that? You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Brook Hills, I, I pray that we would be this countercultural, stunning community of faith. The world doesn't yawn, a collective yawn when it looks, but it sees something distinctive where with full conviction, you and I say to one another, pray, and he hears you. Fall, and we'll catch you. And then with our eyes, ultimately, to the author and finisher of our faith, we say, Jesus will keep us.